Welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I am joined as usual by Mustache Chris. We're blessed to have our another member of our crew, Joe Pascone. You'll recognize his voice from other episodes, but you'll also recognize his voice as he is the voice of the Organized Crime and Punishment commercials. So thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. Uh, I guess to come up with a term, forget about it. No problem. Forget about it. (laughs) Joe is going to join us today to talk about a really interesting aspect that brings together different shades of law enforcement, different shades of crime and organized crime. And all of this kind of blurs the line between organized crime and crime and the the legal system. Everything sort of gets blurred together. And that is in the story of the Molly Maguires. It might be a, a topic that people have heard of or heard a little bit of, but maybe don't know a lot about it. But it's a really critical aspect that's kind of nestled inside of many aspects of American history. And let's, I think the best way to get into this is let's just get right into it. Uh, Joe, what got you interested in thinking about these Molly Maguires? So the Molly Maguires first came to my attention. I'm doing a, a massive series currently on the American labor movement, rise of trade unions, labor unions. And they were sort of the first, they're considered the first labor martyrs in American history. Um, whether they deserve that distinction, we can get into it for sure. But uh, they were their trial. They were railroaded. It was railroaded through. At the end of it, twenty people hung uh, in 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 America simply because they were a part of this thing called the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Uh, but so, how do you get into this? How do you talk about something so complicated with so many levels, uh, especially about an Irish American secret society with labor union? and political organizations a part of it, and all the rest. The best way to do that, I think, is with a Hindu proverb from, from India, uh, obviously. So, <laughs> Of course. So I got this proverb from the Mark Bullock book, The Sons of Molly Maguire, The Irish Roots of America's First Labor War. In it, the Indian king is faced with calamity. The prime minister comes to him, says, we need to make a decision on 
you know, disease ravaging the land, catastrophe, whatever, war, doesn't matter. Uh, he says, okay, sure, fine. But first I need three blind men and an elephant. Uh, so the prime minister is like, okay, I don't really see the point of this, but let's go through with this. The three blind men and the elephant are brought before the king. And the king asks the three blind men to describe the elephant for him. So one is trying to put, one of the blind men is trying to put his arms around the waist of the elephant. And he says the, the, the elephant's like a barrel. Another one is trying to measure how high, how tall the elephant is. He says, no, the elephant's like a tree. The last one is feeling the elephant's tusks. And he says, no, you're both wrong. The elephant is like a spear. So just like the Molly Maguires and the elephant, they are all of these things and none of them at the same time. Uh, bear with me. <laughs> so they were in a sense a barrel because they insulated and protected the Irish community that they were a part of. They were a tree because they had branches that extended to neighboring communities and and neighboring Irish uh, Irish people around them in coal country and in Ireland originally. Uh, and they were like a spear because they acted, at least in their eyes, on the community's behest. They committed crimes, they robbed people, they murdered with the quote-unquote blessing of the community. So that's where we should start here. We could start with the Irish roots, and, and this is one of the main of three characters I like to describe in the story. The first character is Ireland, the next is America, specifically Schuylkill County and the Anthracite region. Uh, and the final character is coal itself and the coal mining trade practice. Yeah, so it's really interesting when you dig into each of those. It really is the three characters, and it's kind of hard to believe that coal is a character, but it really is. Coal is such a huge, huge part of the founding of American industry and the founding of the America as we know it today. The industrial giant that the North became during the Civil War is directly related to coal. Uh, in my previous episode, I cover the Coal War Wars in Colorado, which led to the Ludlow Massacre, the Battle of Ludlow, however you want to look at it. Uh, but in there, uh, Thomas G. Andrews, I believe is the writer's name, he makes an a incredible point. The cowboy might have, quote unquote, tamed the West, but the coal miner won the West more than any other profession. They provided the cowboy with the gun, the bullets, the, the knife, the hammer, uh, you know, the tools of his trade. Without that, uh, America would still be pretty much a, a desolate place where a few thousand people are able to survive. But thanks to coal and the advent of steam and things like this, America exploded not only in population and in, in migrant labor, but also in, um, you know, power. But yeah, to, to start this story, first place you have to start, I think, is Ireland. Because this is where the, the Molly Maguires first pop their head up. And they don't do it in the traditional coal regions, they do it in the borderlands of Ulster. Uh, those who don't know, Ulster is today, or at least most of Ulster, is today Northern Ireland. Huge tension, division still between uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, one of the main defining features of Ulster is a thing called the Black Pig's Dyke. This is in myth mythology or in local legend, the Irish believe that a massive black pig created the dike with its tusks, ramming it through the, the earth. Uh, scientists now think that these that this dike is actually a long gone series of fortifications that belong to the Red Branch Warrior Brotherhood, which is a super cool name. Okay. Uh, at a, yeah, at a place called Ballinamuck, 
or it's it's spelled ball in amok, but I believe it's pronounced ball in amok. Local legend says that this same pig, he was stopped as he was doing his thing by a, a man who I guess was angry that he was tearing up his field, threw a, a rock at him and it stopped the, the pig in its tracks. And that's why there's this big defile at around the same area. Uh, Ulster was originally founded during a mythological legendary race between the O'Neill clan and a, a rival clan. The idea was whoever touched Ulster uh, land first won the entire territory. So O'Neill is racing this guy on a boat. They take off from Northern England or uh, Scotland. He realizes pretty quickly he's going to lose. This guy is making way more ground than he is on his on his ship. So does O'Neill do the sensible thing and turn around, say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try and get it again? Uh, no, he chops off his own hand and he chucks it at the beach of Ulster. It touches land first. He's awarded Ulster, and that's how the flag of Ulster became the red hand. That's where that's from. So as the O'Neills first arrive and followed, they are followed by a huge minority population of Scot-Irish and Anglo-Irish. It, the, the, the closest thing you can compare it to is colonization. They dominated Ulster specifically on a completely economic level. Uh, this domination didn't mean that people in Southern Ireland or Catholics in Ireland didn't hold to their culture. Unless you're like really familiar with history. I mean, Ireland was really Britain's first colony, right? And unlike like some of the other colonies or I say like use India as an example, like they never really tried to replace in like Indians or Indian culture where in Ireland, they there was an honest to God attempt to just replace the Irish. It didn't work, but it's um, I just think that's interesting. It's, it's incredible, and no one talks about it, especially people who are proponents of this idea that British colonization was an overall good for the people it happened to. I don't necessarily buy that. Obviously, they did something for the people there. I'm not saying that's not the case, but the fact that something like Irish river dancing has to exist. For those who don't know, Irish river dancing is done completely with your hands at your side. Because if you were to dance in the traditional Irish style in British Ireland at this time, you would be considered disturbing this, the peace and you'd be thrown in jail. So this was the kind of authoritarian rule that was going on throughout Ireland. That's why these same customs had to exist. Uh, Ireland also is just completely fundamentally different from England. The way the people work, the way the people believe, the way the people um, exist. I'll give you an example. In Fermanagh, uh, the phrase to join in work means to start work because you can never they believe in Fermanagh that you can never truly start work you always have to join it eventually uh the people were controlled in ireland through a thing called the conacre system and there's plenty talked about about absentee landlordism in great britain at this time and you can definitely find more information about that and countless other sources one of the first main times that the irish people try to stand up for themselves is well there's countless uprisings throughout history i shouldn't say this is one of the main ones but this is one of the big rebellions led by a guy named wolf tone in 1798 also a really cool name uh basically what happened this was a part of the french revolutionary war the french sent a few thousand men to southern ireland to help with this rebellion now the at the battle of balinamuk uh, the French are trounced and they're able to surrender. They're given full military honors. 
but the Irish are completely devastated. They're just wiped off the field. And this is a quote from the uh, writing after the fact. Terrorist thousands died, shaking scythe at cannon. They buried us without shroud or coffin. And in August, the barley grew up out of the grave because the peasants, they would have pieces of barley in their pocket. I don't know, for food to, to plant later, maybe in total 30 to 50,000 people died. Uh, comparatively, the Dos de Mayo, um, the uprising in Madrid that's famously talked about, which was brutally put down by Napoleon, that caused the death of a few hundred. You know, the, 300 people were executed. That's horrifying. But 50,000 is, 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 is a truly staggering number. So it makes perfect sense that the original Molly Maguire's, the Irish version of this gang, secret society, whatever you want to call them, uh, were, were founded around the same area in Cavan and Leitrim. They were, or they at least believe, in essence, they were these reincarnated spirits of the dead at Balinamuk. Around this same area, if you guys are familiar with the show Game of Thrones, um, this is probably where the character Craster is based on, Craster's Keep how he had all the daughters as his wives and he would uh, give the, the firstborn males to the white walkers. This is based on a place called Magschlecht. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. It's called the Plain of Adoration. Apparently, this legendary Irish king, Tigger Namas, he would ensure that his fields were, were fertile by sacrificing goats, pigs, and in some cases, the firstborn of all the family all the families that lived under his domain. So this is where that scene in, or where that setting in Game of Thrones, I believe, is based on. Um, this, this violence is just more to show that Ireland has had anything but a peaceful history. It's been a very violent place since its founding. And even before the English arrived, there were like Danish Vikings and, and all kinds of people, hundreds of different kings and, and kingdoms and, and petty kings that we're all vying for control of this island. Um, one of the big things that the Irish were super against was military conscription. They could not stand military conscription, much like the Sicilians down in Italy. That was the big deal breaker. You were not going to conscript Irish people to go fight other Catholics, usually. That was usually a big part of it. Um, in 1798, the same rebellion I've talked about, it was led in part by the defenders, which I'm going to talk about later as a secret, another secret society, and the Ribbon Men, uh, which grew out of the Defenders. And in turn, they grew into the AOH, or the Ancient Order of Hibernians, who were also Molly Maguires. Uh, if this is confusing, don't worry. Uh, it's Ireland. I, in Ireland, Karl Marx famously said that uh, secret societies grow there like mushrooms in a forest. Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, featuring great shows like Richard Limbs, This American President, and other great shows. Go to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more, and here is a quick word from our sponsors. It's interesting, uh, the similarities between southern uh, Italy and Ireland in some ways, where you know, Ireland was an occupied country, give or take, for a good chunk of its his like modern history. Southern Italy, the same thing, and they both have these secret societies. Basically, come out of it as a a reaction to the ruling authorities, right? You have the ancient order, the uh, 
Hibernians. And then in Italy, you have, uh, you know, the various different types of mafias, but probably most famously, famously La Cosa Nostra, right, which was a secret society. And with the Hibernians, you have like the Molly Maguires, which are, depending on how you read it, it sounds like it was like a secret society within a secret society. Or the the Adrangata yeah. right the Adrangata right now in Calabria is the Adrangata itself is a secret society, but within the Adrangata, at least from the information that we have, there's a like a secret society within that secret society. The Adrangata is usually typically known as like probably the most secretive out of all the uh, out of all the three big mafias in southern Italy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. There are definitely a lot of similarities, and I, I think it goes to show how universal the strain and the the oppression of, of colonization is to the people that it, it occurs to and this is a across the across the globe i mean i know you spoke about india but there were indian secret societies that were all about getting rid of the british that's how the indian national army rose to prominence and gained thousands of members in the 1940s because so many people were fed up with british uh civilization and their uh oppression and the murder of hundreds and hundreds of of Indian people. Yeah, so it's really interesting. You're um you're really painting a uh, painting a canvas of what's going on in Ireland. Uh, let's start to wrap up what's happening into Ireland, and then get into the really fascinating story of how that transitions into America. Sure. So so the first reports of Molly Maguireism is around the 1840s, the end of 1844. Uh, also, not coincidentally, I believe, right in tandem with the start of the potato blight, which killed millions and displaced another million or two. Uh, and the first murder that they actually committed was on January 29th, 1845. They killed a guy named McLeod. And it was, this was such a well-known killing that the Molly Maguires came up with their own song for it, which goes, there was McLeod, so big and proud. I think it fit to mention to put men in jail and take no bail. It was his whole intention. So there's the the motive for the killing right there. To liberty, as you may see, some persons did inspire. To lay him down, the dirty hound, they say it was Molly Maguire. And uh, then in later in May, another person walking home, they get murdered. Boom. What do the locals do? They blame it on the local IR, our IRS agent, <laughs> as you do. Um, then again, June 22nd, another guy gets murdered in Kavan. A magistrate was killed in Halloween in 1845. July 1845 was the real, the first real public outing of the Molly Maguire movement. This guy was arrested supposedly as a Molly Maguire hitman, and he, he defamed the, the, the movement to the detectives. Another guy named Philip O'Reilly claims to be a part of this movement, and he actually wrote a whole manifesto where it explained the, the group's intentions and, and what their their, their reasoning was behind what they were doing and why they were seeking violence against people who were, in, in their opinion, oppressing them. So at the same time, as all this is going on, the potato blight is, is terrible for everyone. I mean, Molly Maguire's are getting affected as much as, uh, as, much as anyone else. So they're just as hard up. Uh, one of the main, the biggest murder that the Mollies committed in Ireland was against Dennis Mahan. He was a landlord for Ballykilclines. He forcibly deported 400 Catholic Irish people who were in his town simply because he wanted to replace them with, with new 
with new people, with new men, you know, uh, good Protestant stock, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when these 400 people were on the way to Liverpool, their boat capsized, killing hundreds. So he was deemed responsible for this whole thing. He was killed on the road also. Uh, to sort of wrap up this whole thing, Thomas Packenham, who's actually a distant relative of this guy, Mahan, he, he says, quote, he's writing about the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. He says, quote, the British discriminated against them at every level, making them outsiders in their own country. But the grievance that touched them most widely was the land. So Irish, Irish Molly Maguireism was all about the land question. It was all about tenant rights, all about farmers. It was about, you know, resisting unlawful convictions or uh, unlawful lawful convictions or evictions. Uh, so they have to escape. They need to go somewhere. It's $23 to boat ride from Ireland to America in this day. So millions jump on the boat on the boat and they head not only for America, but they go to English cities like Liverpool, Manchester, et cetera, and to new Spanish territory. Uh, I do a series on Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico is just filled with Irish, um, Irish policymakers and lawmakers. But that's really the end of the, I, uh, the Irish Molly Maguires. They stay around for a few more years after that, but they never gain the same prominence that they did at the height of the potato famine. They find new life in America, which we'll get into. Yeah, you really see that uh, you don't get groups like the Molly Maguires if everything's going awesome, that you really uh, were, were kind of keep setting the stage that the Molly Maguires are really a reaction to what's going on and these secret societies. Mm -hmm. or a reaction is definitely a great term for it because these people, they, they weren't like, you know, they, they weren't like bleeding heart liberals or, or socialists or something. They were they were socially very conservative, but they were fighting for the same rights that they felt that they had a right to enjoy. Same thing in Southern Italy. The peasants who were fighting against the national Italian army in Southern Italy weren't particularly progressive or anything, but they had state rights that were taken away from them uh, by an invading force to either their their detriment or to their to their benefit. Um but yeah, it, it's the same. It's the same difference, especially for modern like audiences. I think they kind of really forget that. I mean, regardless of what your politics are like nowadays or what have you, like the labor movement is it is what it is. Right. It's particularly liberal, especially when it comes to like social issues and things of that nature. But if you kind of look at these early labor movements and I don't know if you would really consider the Molly Maguire's a labor movement, they just saw kind of injustice and decided that they were going to do something about it uh for their fellow yeah. irishmen a lot of these people weren't like they weren't like social liberals like a lot of these people were like you know traditionalist like conservatives like you know you get married young you have a big family you know you go to church you <laughs> it's just I, I think it's something that a lot of i don't know it gets like misconstrued a, a lot of these like early uh labor organizers you can call them or i don't know labor fighters there's i don't know there's a bunch of different words you could use for them right but a lot of these guys <laughs> were socially conservative and i think a lot of uh modern conservative both conservative and left fail to uh i don't know to fail to realize that i think yeah they failed to realize it and they, they failed to appreciate the the really 
you know, the, the roots of, of the whole struggle, the, the, uh, I mean, the labor movement back then was strictly Democrat. It is that now, but I uh, know a lot of people argue that the parties have changed. I think it's hard to look at a map from 1900, an electoral map from 1900 and today and say that there hasn't been any change. Uh, but I think it's even fairer to say that almost every single decade in American history, the parties have been completely different or there have been new parties or they've flip flopped on some issue or they've jumped on a bag bandwagon. This has been the history of America and especially this early American time when no one knows what the what, what's going on. Oh, yeah. We'll get into yeah, it I a think, little yeah. bit, like especially like leading up to the Civil War and even during the Civil War. There's all these parties I bet you people have never even heard of, you know, like the. The Know Nothing Party, the Southern mm-hmm. Whigs, you know, like, yeah, which is, yeah, and the Wagawumps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you take a look at like the revolutions of 1848, those were in a way a very, I, in many ways, a left wing uh, revolutions. But the US, which was very conservative in many ways, supported a lot of those revolutions because they felt that there was the revolutionary spirit there. Yeah, and it it goes to show that America doesn't really know which way is up. I mean, they'll change positions depending on on what's going on throughout history. I mean, at one point they're saying no new colonizers, and then at another time they're invading Haiti 15 different times. Getting into where you've used this term Molly Maguire, was there an actual historical Molly Maguire? Who is Molly Maguire? Was this a real person? Is this all make em ups? Uh, so Molly Maguire was a character in Mummery. And we'll get into Mummery uh, like right after this because it's a huge part of the Molly Maguire movement. It's, a, it's like their modus operandi for, for their killings, at least in the early period. So Molly Maguire was one of these characters. She would call the dead back to life after receiving a donation. In a mummer's play, two people fight, one person dies, you give donations, the person rises from the grave. Um, this goes a little deeper once you understand that an Irish translation to Jester is Maguire. And Maguire was one of the names of the famous Fermanagh chiefs. So there, there was a famous set of chieftains who were called Maguire. Uh, it gets even more convoluted once you start to understand that Molly Maguire wasn't always or strictly called Molly. She was originally Mary Ann Maguire. Uh, and they used this name actually until like the 18, early 1850s when it finally fell out of vogue. Makes sense. Molly Maguire makes, is a lot better of a name than Molly Ann Maguire, in my opinion. Um, another character in Mummer Plays was called Molly Masket. So here's another layer to the, to the Mummery thing. And this helps explain basically a transcontinental game of telephone that took place. You know, the game telephone you played as a kid, one person said something to another. And then by the end, it sounded completely different than what it was originally intended. That's probably where the term Molly Maguire comes from. But the legendary Molly Maguire was either the mother of two dead Irish patriots who was evicted by, uh, you know, an evil English landlord uh, or she was a completely deranged uh, lunatic woman who who raved that she was the leader of a, a new Ireland, that she's going to lead these armies and free free Ireland from British dominion. Uh, once you understand something like Celtic myths, uh, this starts to make more sense that people would con- 
associate themselves with this uh, insane version of Molly Maguire, because in Celtic myth, quote, the country is a woman, the spouse of the king. Before her marriage, she is a quote unquote hag or a woman whose mind is deranged. So these people who are calling themselves Molly Maguires believe that they were literally the sons of Mother Ireland. I mean, in just as many terms. But what's a mummery? I say that word a bunch. I've just mentioned it a few times. So think of Halloween trick-or-treating. Instead of Halloween trick-or-treaters, there's grown men who come to your door and they perform a combat play in your living room or in your kitchen. Uh, This always ended in the death of one of the combatants. And like I was saying, someone would step forward, ask for donation of money, food, drink, whatever. And uh, from those donations, they would throw an end of the year party. Uh, In these plays, men would dress uh, in traditionally women's clothing. They would dress in black or white face. They would wear straw throughout their body. Uh, And this is understandable once you understand that Mummery comes from the French word mumere, which means to mask oneself. Uh, and these mummers usually worked exclusively with the Molly Maguires. Sometimes they were mummers, and the other half of the time they were Molly Maguires. So there must have been a, a, a heck of a lot of confusion if you were one of these just like poor farmers and a bunch of people show up at your house. Are they going to kill me? Or are they going to, are they going to, you know, have a, a, a good old time and I'm going to give them some money? So we can throw a party at the end of the day. So this became a huge point of contention for the the Irish uh, and Irish secret societies. It was definitely a love hate relationship between the peasants. I um, I've spent a lot of time in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, where a lot of this stuff will eventually happen, and in Philadelphia, and they still do mummers parades in Philadelphia. We went to the mummers parade in the early 2000s, so not that long ago, and they still did blackface at that time. I think they got Yikes. rid of it with within a few years of there, but within memory they were still doing that sort of thing and they had it wasn't i strictly irish anymore there were people of all different uh backgrounds but they still did a lot of that stuff but mummery was a lot more common amongst irish i think when they first came over but it's and it's condensed a lot now but it still is going on to this very day yeah just off camera like me and you steve like arguing about like how much paganism is still part of like European culture. And like I've argued, it's like this, it's obviously not a huge part of it now, but it's still there. Right. And I, I've argued that like European culture in a lot of ways is this, is this battle between um, paganism and the Christianity that came in later. And I mean, and you can see it with this type of ritual, right? Like there's no, this isn't in Christianity. This is straight out of paganism. And this, these are traditions that probably got passed down, you know, and changed over time. But for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Definitely. And and mummery was actually one of the few things that translated from England to Ireland. So that, I think, just adds weight to, to your argument there, Chris. Uh, I, yeah. I agree 100% that paganism is still a huge part of Judeo-Christian values. I mean, look at how many saints there are. Why are there so many saints if if there isn't some sort of polytheism? I, that's just something I think about a lot. But uh, but yeah, like you were saying, it was a huge part. Uh, uh, like Steve was saying, I mean, 
it was a huge part of the community, it still is, even though a lot of the population, uh, the Irish population, was supplanted within like a generation. But it just shows how lasting the old country and the old country scars remain and that how they actually transfer to the new world, mostly because some of the same practices were still going on. Talk a little bit about the secret societies in Ireland, which will set us up to the how they translate over to the U.S. Okay, everyone strap him. <laughs> so there were the straw boys. These were uh, uh, these were usually unmarried men. They'd show up at your house in the middle of the night, snatch your daughter, force her into marriage. Uh, almost always, the father was of a higher social strata. So if you were a tenant farmer, this might be your landowner. You, you snatch your daughter, and now you've got your foot in the door, so to speak. They were wren boys. These were um, these were also unmarried people. Whenever I say boys, by the way, boys in Ireland means unmarried men, just so we're clear. Uh, I'm not talking about a bunch of little children. They'd show to your house. They'd show up at your house after Christmas, like Boxing Day. Uh, they'd go door to door with dead birds asking for donations. If you didn't donate... Uh, they would bury this dead bird in your front yard, which is very bad luck. I mean, it would ruin your whole family's luck for the whole year. At least that's what people in Ireland believed. Um, one of the first rekindlings of secret societies after the 1798 rebellion was in around 1816, right after the Napoleonic Wars. These guys called Ribbon Men set fire to the Wild Goose Lodge, and they roasted alive eight people. Uh, famously, some woman was inside and she said, please let me out. I have nothing to do with this. And the answer from outside was, you didn't heed the warning in time. And they just watched it burn. Really savage stuff. These ribbon men were mostly nationalistic, very interested in politics, interested in sectarianism, interested in, in, in nationalism. Uh, they were most defined by the tassels they wore, the ribbons on their lapels. Uh, there were white boys. They were called white boys because of the starch white shirts they would wear. They were more interested in the uh, land question. They operated mostly in Southern Ireland. They believed in a form of localism. It wasn't exactly socialism. It wasn't exactly right-wing populism. It was some sort of mix of the two. It's described in uh, the book, Molly, Mag The Sons of Molly Maguire, as a localism. Everything was about your locality, your local community was everything. Uh, and one way they would promote local communities is through subtle threats. So a white boy gang would show up at your house. They'd be like, they, they pull you aside. They'd be like, it would be a real shame if, um, you know, you took this grain to market without first selling it to your neighbor at a fair price. And that would be the, and then they just leave. And that would be the, and you'd have to like, just mull it over if you really want to, you know, risk making a little bit more money sending your, your grain to international markets or uh, uh, risk the ire of your entire community. So that's the white boys. Um, so it explains, again, the transition from white boy to ribbon men to Molly Maguire uh, slash uh, ancient order of Hibernians. It, throughout this entire period, too, massive riots and unrest against technology itself. I mean, people are destroying sewing machines in, in England and stuff. This is where the term Luddite comes from. This guy called, this legendary guy called Commander Ludd went about the English countryside and destroyed, uh, destroyed milling equipment and, and machinery. These all usually ended up being 
against, or at least in Ireland, it ended up being a sort of a undeclared war between Protestant secret societies and Catholic secret societies. I'm not even going to get into the Protestant secret societies because it's a whole other a group of names and 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 uh, objectives, uh, uh, and it's just it, it would just be here forever. <laughs> but that's how um, the secret societies sort of molded in Ireland, and they did so at a as a direct response to the problems going on in their countryside. I mean, beyond just the potato blight, elections were were incredibly violent. Every single election in, in Ireland was just evolved into rioting, and you know, countless died just trying to go vote. It was a really intense situation. So it made all the more sense to leave that place and to leave so in, in such vast numbers that I, I, is Ireland still recover, ever recovered from the potato blight yet? Have they reached the pre-blight population? I don't think so. No, I don't even think it's close. Yeah, it's like millions away still. So, I mean, that just goes to show how absolutely devastating the potato blight was for this for this uh, island no i think there's like only a couple of examples or i think there's more irish like more irish live outside of ireland than actually in ireland i think mm-hmm. jamaica jamaicans is another one those are two off the top of my head but i can't really think of too many other ethnicities where that's the case yeah it was a, it was a serious i mean uh some people have used the word genocide i, I think that that's if that's not fair then it's 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 right up against the line i mean it was uh and it's not like they were intentionally trying to starve people. It was, you know, uncaring, unfeeling government that led to this massive atrocity. But one of the few things that actually ended up, uh, you know, one thing that stayed the same was the the coal mines. Uh, coal is is plentifully found in both Ireland and Pennsylvania. So it made a perfect sort of transition to people who are coal miners or people who experienced mining culture uh, when they moved to the anthracite region of Pennsylvania. Yeah, isn't it? Um, I'll steal, we're going to talk about coal and I'll steal a little bit of your thunder, Joe. Uh, Pennsylvania, that region of northeastern Pennsylvania, I don't think it's too far to go to say it has beautiful coal. It's almost, it's a, it's pure, it's one of the best coal in the, the entire world and, and as, as a matter of fact where uh we'll get into this but it, uh there's a chunk of coal my i have a picture of my kids in front of it and their friends there's a piece of one piece of coal in one of these towns that's the size of a f-150 pickup truck and it's just it's pure perfect coal and wow. that's what they were that's what they were there for yeah, I've seen it where um, some of the colleges, they make like complete uh, like football trophies out of coal. Uh, a lot of these uh, state colleges in, in this part of Pennsylvania, I've seen a few pictures like that, and they're just gorgeous. And coal is a really incredible material and, and rock. They're still mining it to this day, are they not? Uh, um, I'm not sure if they're mining it in the anthracite region anymore. They might still be uh, here and there, definitely not at the same scale. Most of the mining in America is done in in West Virginia now, I believe. But so what is coal? I mean, uh, we use uh, people have used coal for thousands of years. The earliest uh, mention of coal is the ancient Chinese in like 3000 BC or something. So this has not been some like new revelation only with the advent of steam did it really gain traction and popularity 
But coal is uh, decomposed plant matter. It's that has been denied any form of sunlight. So therefore, it can't break down properly. Um, this is usually found in places that used to be huge giant marshes, for example, along the Alleghenies in modern day Pennsylvania. In Colorado, there's huge seams of anthracite coal uh, that used to be an entire gigantic swampland. Um, so, what kind of coal is there? There's several different kinds. There's lignite and jet, which is a derivative of lignite. Lignite is the poorest quality coal you can find. It's called a brown coal. Uh, jet is a gemstone that's derivative of this uh, of this coal. Mesoamericans they made absolutely exquisite artwork with this stuff. I mean, ancient Aztecs, they would make beautiful, um, like, uh, eagle head art with, uh, jet. If you know the term jet black, that's where this, that's where this comes from. Oh, that's uh, interesting. yeah, yeah. You never think about that, but I've, I've never thought one second where the term jet black comes from. I just always assumed what it, it just meant that, but it comes from jet. Um, Next is bituminous, subbituminous coal. This is like the middling quality coal. It's called soft coal sometimes. They use this in coke fuel. That's the big thing that this stuff is used in. This is done any sort of smithing work uh, ever has used coke fuel that is probably derivative from uh, the, the bituminous and subbituminous coal. Anthracite, we've mentioned the word a lot. This is the, this is the grand poobah of all the coal. It's called hard coal. It's sometimes called Kilkenny coal because of where it's found in Ireland. It burns the longest and the hottest, and it's definitely the most valuable. Uh, anthracite's usually found, it's found all over the place. Today, uh, China, it like outpaces every other country combined, basically. If you look at a, a map of, of Chinese coal mining, it's absolutely ludicrous to see it because it, it's like looking at like, U.S. defense spending or something. It's like, well, what? Like, um, so how do these mines work? There are a bunch of different ways you can mine. Um, the most famous way, at least during this period, the most traditional way is called room and pillar mining. Uh, room and pillar, as it uh, says, is all about having a single room. One or two miners would work in it. There'd be broad avenues and streets connecting each of these rooms. It's like a city. Uh, and they'd work in these mines to, for hours at a time. Uh, usually they'd make their own hours. They'd have equipment. This was very individualistic kind of work. Um, another form is long wall mining. Long wall mining, as it implies, is done against a single long wall with multiple people working on it at once. It sort of behooved you to be on shift every single day. If you missed a single day in long wall mining, you would screw not yourself, but also all the people who work beside you because they'll be getting a lesser amount of coal. So in spite of the individualism that was festered through long wall mining, uh, miners found camaraderie right away, considering they're the only other living things under the earth besides the few animals they work with. Uh, camaraderie was essential. I mean, a single mistake, single careless mistake or, or, or issue could completely kill everybody in the mine uh and it could do so very easily uh mutual aid was like an absolute necessity in all kinds of mines and the experienced miners the 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 most uh, uh longest working miners they would always be the first line of uh 
the responders. They would be the first ones there if there was ever a mine disaster, and they would work ferociously to try and save anybody that they could. So skin color, ethnicity, religious views, political views, they did not matter one bit in the mines. Once you got out of the mine and you went to the saloon, all bets were off. Then, okay, that might matter. But when you worked underground, it was a complete brotherhood of, of men who worked side by side for the betterment of each other and for the safety of each other. Uh, there's plenty of issues. They had to deal with plenty of, plenty of problems. Obviously it's, uh, one of the main ones were any number of gases that could be released. So there's stink damp. This smells like rotten eggs. It's hydrogen sulfide. This could be overpowering. You could imagine that it could, if you were alone in a room and you were just bombarded with the smell of rotten eggs and you had no ventilation, you would probably become sick pretty quickly. Then there was black damp. This was named because the, the, the flames that they would have to light their way would flicker black. So they would call it black damp. This was a buildup of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide chokes the oxygen out of any room it's in. So this could cause uh, asphyxiation and you could die. The worst one out of all of these, all the ones I'm going to talk about is after damp. So this is carbon monoxide and coal dust. Absolutely like... Uh, uh, blown together. The carbon monoxide killed most people during any sort of explosion. This explosion was caused by fire damp, which is the buildup of methane in between the literal coal seams. Uh, and this, once a single spark hit this stuff, it would just blow everything sky high. The worst uh, mining disaster in American history was in West Virginia. Around 360 people died most of them were asphyxiated, but the worst one in world history happened at the height of World War II in Chinese or in Japanese occupied China. Something like a thousand five hundred miners suffocated to death after Japanese uh, soldiers who were running the mine and using these Chinese people as basically slaves. Uh, they they shut off the they shut off all the exits to the mine, which probably asphyxiated most of them. I mean, the explosion probably caused way fewer casualties than the actual asphyxiation following the, the blockading of the mine, which is pretty horrifying. Um, but yeah, I, I just for a personal story, my own great uncle, he worked for years in the sulfur mines of Sicily. For those who don't know, Sicily sulfur mines produced maybe half of the world's sulfur for a good part of the you know, early centuries. Uh, he was crushed to death uh, by a rock. And the person, uh, Mark Bullock, the guy who wrote the book, The Sons of Molly Maguire, his great-grandpa, who he never met, was impaled by a stalactite when he was 13. So this was not work for the faint of heart. I mean, I couldn't imagine a worse place to work in my life. I, maybe that's just like familial trauma. Yeah, and I mean, even nowadays that there's a lot more health and safety standards and it's still, for lack of a better word, sucks to work in a mine. Like I can even speak for myself, like my personal, like I do a lot of, for my, for work, I do, uh, it's like physical labor, right? And even with all safety mechanisms in place and stuff like that, it's, you know, I just look around sometimes and be like, oh, there's probably a hundred things here that could kill me if something goes wrong. I could probably... <laughs> wouldn't happen but it's you know it's only magnified when you on top of it where in these mines i think 
it's very difficult for modern people to really understand just how like ridiculously dangerous these places were. And you mentioned you mentioned your great grandfather was sulfur. He worked in a sulfur mine, right? Yeah. I was, yeah. I was going to say to the audience, uh, just um, look at pictures of sulfur mines uh, on just typing it in on Google. You'd be uh, shocked just how uh, beautiful they look. They smell terrible, but you know, <laughs> from a distance, they look beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it was. A, and like Steve was saying, coal is is beautiful. I, if you look at uh, a chunk of coal, it, it's an absolutely gorgeous rock. Same thing with sulfur, but sulfur was even deadlier because sulfur could could burn. So I imagine yeah. there were very few flames alive down in those mines in Sicily. You were working in the virtual dark. That must have been truly horrifying, especially if you were one of these little kids, like you were a breaker boy or something who went through the coal and the shale. And you had to keep they, they show this in the Molly Maguire movement, uh, the movie. The kids had to keep moving their feet or else it would get sucked under by the conveyor belt and they would lose their legs. This was a just a regular thing that they just had to adjust to. You don't think about having to do something like that, but this is something that children had to do. And and once you graduated from there, you became a driver. So you drove mules and, and mules for their reputation are incredibly stubborn animals. They could bite you and kick you and and easily kill a human being, especially a human being who's only 15 years old. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. As we move forward, we're, uh, we have to kind of step out of the uh, Irish for a minute and start to set up the Civil War because that's that's uh, coming and that's going to really uh, impact this whole story of the Molly Maguires, because you can see where all these things are starting to come. Coal is the uh, essentially the lifeblood of uh, industry at that time. And coal's got to come out of the ground in some way. And you're you have the Irish who are the ones who are pulling it out of the ground. And then you have the Civil War, who in a lot of ways, the Irish are going to be uh, one of the almost the backbone of these armies. So in a fight that's almost not their own, how does that all start to come together? So it, it comes together um, before America is even a country, before America is even a country, hundreds of thousands of Protestant Ulster men. Uh, depart for Pennsylvania. Now, in Pennsylvania, they were a part of the militant backbone of, for, for Pontiac's War, Pontiac's Rebellion, uh, which is a pre-revolutionary uh, war rebellion of, of Native peoples. Uh, and they they came because they needed. They were so talented at putting down Native rebellions. But in this case, they put down Irish Native rebellions. They didn't put down Native American rebellions. Uh, they came at the behest of this guy named Benjamin Bannon. He was sort of this like overlord of the whole area. He ran a newspaper. Uh, so he had massive influence there. Um, he was also made one of the, the, the draft, um, the draft commissioners for the entire area. And he would bring tens of thousands of Irish Catholics into Pennsylvania only to hate them once they arrived need for the Irish Catholics, they must have felt like, oh my God, this is more of the same. We've showed up in this new country and we're still being lorded over by Protestants from Ulster. This is really, this is really something else. Uh, 
one of the and alongside him there's a guy named franklin gowan he comes into the story in the 1870s he was raised uh, a hardcore democrat and uh basically he was um he was to go to the he was he was supposed to be drafted but he paid $300 for his replacement uh his father was an incredibly religiously uh liberal man so much so that he had his son taught in a catholic school in maryland so uh this put a, a check in his box toward the irish community the and in in time he would end up being elected uh and and seen as like a community sort of organizer but he would do it in such a way that would end up in his monopolization of the entire uh railroad and and coal industry of the area uh the first mention of the molly Maguires happens in around the 1850s and they come in tandem with these things called the fantasticals the fantasticals were this uber racist group of irish uh, ne'er-do-wells i mean they would get rip-roaring drunk and have like uh, faux parades in the middle of town they called themselves one group called themselves the santa anna lifeguard and their slogan was oh get out they were named after the 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 victor of of the alamo uh, of general santa anna the dictator and and general in mexico uh another crew called themselves the crow boys after jim crow so this adds, adds a whole new level now there's the race element that people in ireland probably didn't have to confront back home and they were responsible for many a race riot in throughout pennsylvania but in philadelphia especially the first reports of the mollies came in the late 1850s these might have been sensationalized uh but their public face was like i said the ancient order of hibernians this was a benevolent society they would provide foodstuffs money etc for injured or hurt irishmen on the job not exactly a union, not exactly a secret society, completely legal uh, for the most part, save for the subsect of super militant Molly Maguires in their movement. By 1860, uh, about 70% of the workers in the mines were Irish. So you have a, a complete, uh, almost a homogeneous uh, uh, movement that's being insulated underground, that's being fed, uh, it's being fed, uh, you know, terrible, terrible suffering through like the company shop system, the company housing system. Uh, all these things led to an intense amount of distrust between miners and their operators. And I think for obvious reasons, once you start to understand how terrifying the, the company store system was. Well, I was going to say to kind of use like a, a modern example is uh, you hear these stories about but Amazon building these giant factories that are going to be having like apartments above the factories. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and the, no, but in the States for a long, for a good chunk of its, well, I wouldn't say like a big chunk, but like, there's a period there, especially like around the robber baron time, which is kind of, it's not exactly at this time period, but it's leading up to it where a lot of these workers like lived in towns that the companies themselves would, build and you know it had grocery stores and everything but people will go oh that's convenient but it it it's a scary situation to be in where you're completely dependent upon a company that's not elected obviously right and it's ran by for the most part one individual 
And simply like if you, I don't know, make a fuss about, say, a cutback in pay or anything of that nature, you know, you're cut off. And then where do you go? You know, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, this is how much of uh, a lot of these early industries ran in the States. I don't think, you know, unless you're a little bit familiar with the subject, I don't I don't think most people really understand that. Yeah. And just to, to just to give an example of how horrifying this system was. This is from the 1840s. So in case anyone was thinking this was just the product of the Civil War, it wasn't. This was happening in the area for, for years and years beforehand. So, quote, a wife or child may be very sick and the storekeeper has no medicine. A physician may be required who cannot be paid in store goods and cannot be expected to attend without being paid. The storekeeper may have no flour, no meat, no butter, and if he has, he may refuse to let the workmen have either of them on the order, for these are cash articles. The poor man must take what there is at such prices as the merchant shall dictate. The result of all this is that the poor man has found himself in debt to his employer to a large amount, unquote. Uh, another one, this, is, uh, this was like a, a poem written during the time. All I drew for the year was a dollar or three. Those company store thieves made a pauper of me. Uh, and this was the daily life of, of people. Now, and like you were saying, if you, if you raise a fuss, if you try to start a union, which was called a combination back then or a conspiracy back then, you would be, you would be not only fired, you'd be blacklisted from the entire trade. You'd be evicted from your home. You'd be left literally penniless. You'd have the clothes on your back, if that. I mean, uh, for an example of another uh, really crazy example is the Pullman town uh, in, in like a, a generation after this. George Pullman would charge for like the blinds. He would charge you for an extra window. He'd charge you for the good door knocker. He'd charge you for, you know, uh, the furniture. He'd charge you if you were on like a higher floor than someone else. And this would all come out in your pay at the end of the month. And this guy's making hand over foot millions and millions of dollars adjusted for inflation. It's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. And this was just the norm. I, and this was taken from Britain. Uh, Americans like to think that we don't take a lot of things except maybe our language from Great Britain, but our whole attitude toward labor unions and things like that were, were completely based on British law. And some of the first uh, pro-labor movements were saying, we aren't, we aren't oppressed by the British anymore. We're Americans. This is not how things work here. And this is where it was couched. And this is how something like the Molly Maguires can rear their, their head and, and do so very effectively. Uh, all they needed was the spark. And you can see how insipid that becomes where it maybe starts off, maybe or maybe not, the the company town starts off with the best of intentions that it really is to provide housing because the mine is way out away from a place that might not have a town. And they, you start building it from there. But then it just it, it slowly, like an, uh, like an octopus, grows into every single aspect of a person's life. And I think 
today, like Chris mentioned, where Amazon's building housing and like almost recreating the the company towns uh, system. Uh, It's not even just the private sectors doing it here in Austin. The city school district is building housing because for the teachers, because the housing prices are so uh, out of control. But you can see how like that could how you don't even have to imagine how that can turn out oh well you know you're living in our uh, apartment now or you're living in our house you're going to work a couple extra hours a week to pay for that i mean we're giving you a house and it you know for almost nothing compared to what market prices are it totally skews the whole employee employer relationship yeah, and exactly like you were saying, it, it, this relationship is supposed to be time honored. I mean, the the whole idea and the whole argument against labor unions is that they breach liberty of contract, not understanding that liberty of contract should apply to individuals making a contract together. I mean, obviously, you work at a small business there's no need for a labor union because the liberty of contract still exists. There's one person agreeing with another person on X amount of dollars, and that's that. But when it becomes giant conglomerates who, who you know, the, the, the health of the, the national economy is on the line, it becomes completely skewed. And, and the authority and the power dynamics are completely off. You cannot expect some sort of equal treatment across the board for, for you know, the, the same thing. And, and there were, you know, there were were people who owned mines who were uh, genuinely, they genuinely cared about their workers. I'm not saying that's not the case, but they lived in a system where exploitation was the norm. And when exploitation is the norm, that's all you really are accustomed to. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you don't want to give way to something that you consider revolutionary, like a a trade union, uh, which must have been really wild. And it was uh, incredibly brutal the reaction to trade unionism throughout this whole era yeah because it's it's that push and that pull of the the corporations which in a large part have the government behind them have pulled things in such a, one way and to try and pull it back the other way with the trade unions of course there's going to be a huge amount of conflict you almost you you couldn't it would be outrageous to think that there wouldn't be conflict Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and most operators felt that way. They were completely divorced from reality and, and the reality that their workers were, were living through. They thought that they were being paid plenty. I mean, yeah, you have to get your rent taken out in the, in the, at, at, from your check at the end of the month. You're getting paid a, a, a very reasonable price for the work you're doing. That was the, the argument, at least. And in, in reality, I mean, people ended up owing their employers, like I was saying. Uh, people ended up going hungry. People ended up starving. People ended up being evicted if they didn't agree with whatever policy the, 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 their boss put in place. Uh, this all really sparked with the civil war. The civil war created a labor shortage and with the massive influx of, uh, Irish migrants willing to work for a little bit less, uh, companies exploited it to the nines. They would uh, employ Irish people specifically because of their ability to work for less or their, 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 um, you know, they didn't have a problem with it. Uh, with the boom of Northern industry, this fed the workers' movements. 
the workers' movements in fed in turn fed labor unrest. So almost at the start of the the, the Civil War, 1862, there's a big strike in the coal mines. Um, a, almost a, a gunfight erupts between the two sides, but you know, cooler heads prevail, et cetera, et cetera. Bannon, uh, our old friend Bannon, he writes in the newspapers, this was because of Confederates and traitors. Now, contrary to what Bannon was saying, the, the people of Schuylkill County volunteered en masse for the Civil War. There was not a I mean, it's very hard to convince anyone that they were literally traitors when you look at the numbers. I mean, way more than in, in other counties across the country where it's supposed to be like a Republican majority, you know, keep the union the way it is, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they had a massive, massive um, uh, re- recruitment in this area, but that wasn't enough for the people who were running the country. They saw this as a largely democratic, uh, traitorous area. So they pass the Militia Act. A year later, they passed the Enlistment Act. This suspends habeas corpus. Thousands of Democrats who were deemed disloyal were thrown in jail. No charges, nothing. No no right to legal counsel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Bannon is made the draft commissioner. He's going to use the draft to target Democrats specifically uh, because at this time, soldiers were not actually given the vote. If you were uh, if you returned from duty, I believe you were able to vote. And I know Lincoln and the Democrat or Lincoln and the Republicans exploited this during election time. They would send whole units back to back home so they would vote Republican. Uh, and I think it actually flipped Kentucky for, for Lincoln during the 1864 election. So he's, he's sweeping through the coal mines. He's, he's got this guy called Charlemagne Towers, awesome name, terrible person. Uh, to lead the whole roundup. And he basically, this guy Towers, he hands in whole employment lists and he says, draft all these guys. Not wondering, are these people still working here? Are they dead? You know, uh, do they live in a different con- uh, county or a different state? Are they a foreign citizen? Because this was the case too. A lot of these people were Irish nationals. So each of these Irish people that tries to get drafted, they go to the British constabulary or they go to the British embassy and many uh, diplomatic incidents break out every single time this happens. But it doesn't matter. Uh, he just sort of uh, deals with it in stride. Uh, the first killing of the Molly Maguires comes on January 2nd, 1863. There were rumors and, and, and shouts of Molly Maguire in the streets the year previous, but no serious violence. It only really started the day after. New Year's here. The victim was James Bergen. This guy was a, a a union veteran. So far from Molly's targeting, you know, mine operators or the bosses or, or you know, middlemen, they're targeting people who they consider to be not Irish anymore. These people are traitors to the Irish cause because they fought for Lincoln's army, who's a tyrant in their eyes. So he shot uh then 40 men attacked this guy, James McDonald's home. He hid, in a hot, he hid in a mine shaft, but his wife was terrorized for hours and threatened to be shot and, and said that his, his husband, her husband was marked for death. And then two days later on the road, uh, two other union men were, were attacked. When I say union men, I mean for the union. They were pro-union sympathizers. One was a militia man. The other was a, uh, an ardent Republican. So these people are being attacked because of what they believe. It's a very interesting and 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 not talked about part i think of the molly Maguire movement because it's very hard to uh, 
to turn these guys into to, to good people when they're, you know, a- attacking uh, army veterans in the night and, and murdering them. <laughs> so this part is definitely super, super questionable. I mean, I, I don't understand where this would even begin. I understand obviously had serious problems with, you know, the union and, and the way they were being repressed. And this comes to fruition when once troops start showing up and start seriously um, infringing on the, on, on the rights of these people. So in June, or, or sorry, in the middle of July, 1863, there's the New York City draft riots. These are depicted in the Gangs of New York movie by Martin Scorsese. Uh, they were distinctly racial and they were distinctly anti-Republican. This, the, these were these people would have been considered Mollies if they did this in Pennsylvania, uh, probably. So in the anthracite, supposedly there's fifteen thousand armed Mollies and miners waiting for like Lee's army to invade again, so they can join up. Uh, this guy gets robbed. The sergeant uh, he gets robbed. This guy General Whipple comes in. He holds seven men as hostages. You'd hold hostages. The fact that he held the hostages in a northern state that was fighting for the Union was pretty uh, provocative. Uh, and in the end, they just ended up overawing the population throughout 1863, and the draft went off pretty much without a hitch. Whenever you talk about this whole episode and this whole aspect of the Civil War, I think it blows people's minds. I know it blew my mind. Like Abraham Lincoln is not the sainted figure that he's turned into. He was a political animal and he understood politics and he did some pretty bruising politics. I think you almost sell him short by just turning him into the sainted Abe Lincoln and you ignore that the things that he did for better or for worse to keep the union together. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. He was a decisive, cold and and calculating man. But you can be that and also be a caring, loving, you know, father and 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 all around honest person and and genuinely decent president. I mean, you can be all these things at once because he was just a human being. I think a lot of things that a part that gets lost, too, in that whole conflict that you just described is. A lot of these like really hardcore Republicans slash like emancipationists at the time. And you can even just reading about how kind of bizarre some of these people were like even at the time, they must have been like really bizarre. Like these people were like by every definition of the word, like radicals. Um, And, you know, as we know, with most politics, most people kind of fall in the middle or somewhat moderate. Right. So Hmm. people get this impression that like um, the like the northern states were like gung ho, like Republican. And it's just not really the case. There were still a lot of Democrats and there were still a lot of Democrats that opposed the war throughout the entirety of it. They called them copperheads. Uh, Yeah. Republican sympathizers did. But it's not necessarily like these people were like bad people were traitors they just they didn't see that this war was entirely necessary yeah i i I think that was definitely a huge part of it i mean even in with these with these guys the molly mcguires they wanted the union as it was and the constitution as it was they wanted no radical change like you were saying the republicans for their time and and for the place and and the ideas they held they were the radicals i'm not sure if either of you have heard of 
Harry Turtledove. He's a famous uh, alt history writer. Sure. Uh, oh yeah, I've read yeah. his stuff. Yeah, yeah, but he basically in his books, uh, Lincoln becomes the head of the Socialist Party of America, the first Socialist Party, and he ends up challenging like Teddy Roosevelt, who's this hard right, uh, you know, friends with the the central uh, central allies in World War One character now, uh, but. I think in a lot of ways uh, that that view is is not unjustifiable. If you look at uh, some of the things Lincoln said, they would be radical today. I mean, the things he talked about with labor, the things he talked about with unions, he said some pretty wild stuff. He, he was one of the, I mean, he's probably the first and maybe the last president to acknowledge that the the main source of capital is actually labor. Labor creates the capital. He was he was one of the first people to to say that. And, and Karl Marx loved him. He loved he loved him some Abe Lincoln. Well, yeah, that's to me, that's what makes Lincoln really interesting. Everyone kind of focuses on the wrong, I, I don't know, I want to say the wrong things, but if you look at what the Republican Party was trying to do in terms of modernizing America and like their general outlook on how the economy should work, it's, it, I don't think people really get, um, in a lot of ways, like they were trying to create an autocracy, I uh, believe I pronounced that name correctly, where like America would be self-sufficient to not having to be dependent on European nations or other nations for um, its economy. And they generally, they did accomplish that, you know, they were, you know, big on tariffs. They weren't like free trade people, or, which is almost the exact opposite of what goes on. in the. Well, I mean, it, maybe it's a little bit different now, but. For the longest time, the Republican Party, you know, in our lifetime, and especially for young people, it's been like the free trade party. But if you look at Lincoln's uh, Republican Party, they had a very uh, different view of how the economy should run in the country, for better yeah, or worse. All... But I tend to agree with what Lincoln said a lot in terms of how the economy should run. Yeah, I, I agree with it, too. I think I, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but I, I agree with protectionism. That's probably... That's one of like the two things that Trump did while he was in office that I actually, I actually supported. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, to take it back to the 1860s here, uh, the middle, it's the middle of the Civil War. For a really long time, the Molly Maguires kind of go quiet uh, throughout the summer, early fall. They kind of do anything. I think this has a lot to do with the, the, the practice of mummery because they would strike it around the same time time and mummers usually participated in their plays around the christmas season so around this time everyone has a little bit more free time they're not growing you know their wheat or their barley or anything uh they have a minute to you know go shoot a few mine bosses so uh in late october uh or sorry october 10th this guy patrick shannon he's beaten within an inch of his life at home he can barely use his legs ever again uh same night Three other people are attacked. So right out of way, bang, there's, there's a whole bunch of attacks right away. A few days before Halloween, officially, the, the troops called the Invalid Corps, these were, uh, uh, this was a group of um, soldiers who were injured and they couldn't serve on the front lines anymore, but they were used, uh, in this case, for labor suppression. So they arrived to demand conscripts. So when they showed up, they were expecting 183 people to be ready outside the courthouse, you know, to receive their uniforms, et cetera, et cetera. A grand total of three people show up. <laughs> so the next day, the, the cavalry clears the street of Jeansville. 
uh, they, they saber a, a buckshot and the buckshots were another name for the Molly Maguires. Um, this guy, E. Greenlow Scott, he was a, a lawyer. He, he penned an, uh, a really angry letter to Abraham Lincoln. And in it, he, he includes the following exchange. He's talking to a lieutenant. The lieutenant says, we slashed four or five this morning. And he goes, slashed? What's that? The lieutenant responds, why we cut them with sabers? Uh, Greenlaw says, did they resist? Lieutenant finishes, no, but they might have been. You can't trust these fellows. And from there, uh, they actually almost run down and, and murder like a 16-year-old boy. He goes on to describe that. And then early in November, uh, Yorktown was served its draft notices. Um, after they were served their notices, this town, uh, the unit went to George K. Smith's company store. And then they left. They left them high and dry. They're like, you're going to be fine. Uh, little did they know, a few nights before, they knew that this guy Smith was working with the army. So they pass a, a secret resolution to kill him, the Molly Maguires do, in, in the swamps. So this must have been a very intense meeting in the in the swamps at the dead of night, deciding to kill a man. And so on November 5th, uh, George K. Smith has his house broken into by 20 odd people. They're all in blackface or they're wearing whiskers. And he gets he gets shot one time in the head and everyone runs as fast as they can out of the place, yelling and hollering. So this was actually the first mine official. But this was this was going to be the start of a long line of mine officials who were killed. So um, as a way of, of retribution toward this uh, killing, the army shows up again. They arrest 70 people. Uh, all of them were community leaders. They were union leaders, uh, uh, well-known workers of the area. Uh, most of the charges were, in fact, dropped, but almost but 13 of them were indicted for any number of things, disloyalty, treason, et cetera, et cetera. And they were held incommunicado uh, alongside thousands of of confederate prisons of prisoners of war in um in northern pennsylvania so among them was peter peter dillon he was like the most well-known labor organizer of this whole era and in this uh, uh specific place he was well known for like beating the heck out of people come election time he would use his fists a lot in 1864 the draft was initiated once more there were some bushwhackings but really everything went straightforward. The military was now in complete control of the, the coal fields there. Uh, the 13 in Philly, they served alongside, like I was saying, the POWs, but they were eventually released after the war. And one of the great stories that I've ever read, and I, I hope to God that it's true, uh, John Donlin's wife, he walked the entire, she walked the entire distance from Pennsylvania coal country to uh, Washington, D.C., camped outside the White House, and spoke directly with President Lincoln to get her husband released. Uh, supposedly, Lincoln was very nice. He invited her in. They had breakfast. He paid for her, her train ride home. Uh, from that day forth, Margaret Donlin always kept a portrait of Abraham Lincoln at, at, at like the mantelpiece in her living room. And to anyone who would ask, this one was a lifelong Democrat, by the way, she would say he was the greatest man who ever lived. And the kindest. I mean, that's just that's just so powerful, right there. There's no obvious proof that this happened, but with the way the White House, um, you know, visitation laws were back then, it's very possible that it could have. Uh, once you uh, and once you know that 
uh, this guy Donlin was actually released by special order of the president, it becomes even uh, more possible that I think this is true. Uh, with 1864's end, the Molly Maguires kind of go to sleep for a little bit. They kind of wait until after the war uh, because this guy Charlemagne Towers resigns. Uh, once he leaves and the troops leave, the miners, the mining operators left with uh, a lot of the troops because they were like, there's going to be violence again. I'm not I'm not dealing with this. But that's the end of the Civil War era. And that leads us right into the late 1860s, the 1870s and the eventual end of the Molly Maguires as a, at a f- official capacity. We're going to leave it at that for today. I just want to mention, though, the best thing you can do to help us in this podcast is if you enjoy what you're hearing, tell a friend, tell a couple of friends about the Organized Crime and Punishment podcast so that your friends can become friends of ours. Forget about it. You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media, and how to support the show, go to our website, a to zhistorypage.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to zhistorypage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.